Hey, it's Jesse. NPR is doing its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. So please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's all one word. We would really appreciate your help to support NPR podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. All one word. Thanks. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest this week is Keith Phipps. He's a writer who's worked for the AV Club and the Dissolve. Once long ago, he was a regular contributor to this show. He specializes in pop culture, mainly. So, perfect for us. Keith just wrote his first book, and the subject of that book is one that is close to his heart, Nicolas Cage. And, I mean, how do you write about Nicolas Cage? He is one of the most enigmatic actors in recent memory. In his over 40 years on screen, he has performed in unforgettable classics, in arthouse indies, in blockbuster action films, in direct-to-video horror, and literally everything in between. (laughs) Every kind of thing. To the people on Reddit who call him the one true god, he is a human meme. He's perfect for freak-out compilation videos on YouTube and cringy tribute art. To his critics... He's an eccentric goof chasing his past glory. And to his fans, he's an actor who loves to work and never fails to give his all, no matter how small or weird the part. It's not a career that fits neatly into any one box, and his isn't a story you can tell with a simple biography. So, Keith Phipps didn't write a simple biography. Instead, he wrote Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career. The book looks at Nick Cage's career as a story about the film industry at large. It's the saga of a risk-taking actor, maybe the most risk-taking actor ever, finding work in an environment that is less and less conducive to risk-taking. Anyway, I'm really thrilled to welcome Keith Phipps back onto our show to talk about all this. Let's get into our interview about the one and only Nicolas Cage. Keith Phipps, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to see you, bud. It's nice to see you, too. It's been a while. Congratulations on the book. Um, Why did you want to write an entire book about Nicolas Cage? Um, You know, if there's a moment of spark for it, it was seeing the movie Mandy. I I mean, I wanted to write a book. I was fishing around for like a big idea. And I wanted something that I could kind of explore a big chunk of movies. And I saw the film Mandy, and I realized this was someone who been with me most of my like really conscious movie going life. I, I first saw Raising Arizona when I was in junior high and it was around the same time I really started to pay attention to directors and movies and, and what's good and what's not, you know, uh, beyond just simply, you know, uh, that was fun. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of been reading critics for a while, but like this was my first Nicolas Cage movie, my first Coen Brothers movie, first Holly Hunter movie, John Goodman, you name it. These are people who I would, whose career I would, I would kind of keep an eye on and follow. Uh, and Cage kind of provided a through line to every phase of which I've, I've watched and then later written about movies. And it's such a fascinating career. And I figured if I'm going to spend a year watching the movies of one actor, 
it should be Nicolas Cage because that's fun, right? I mean, is it, you're never really going to be <laughs> bored. Um, so that's kind of how that was the idea came from uh, to to kind of t road test the concept. I watched a couple of sort of like you know let's let's find the least uh, apparently appealing. Nicolas Cage movies around. So I chose a couple of direct to VOD things and like they weren't good movies, but he is interesting in them. He's, he's giving, you know, this is someone who, you know, as I saw with Mandy was still trying to do new things, you know, decades into his career, still capable of surprising me. It was from there kind of, you know, it was, you know, we were, we, we were off. It was, it was a, uh, it was a pleasure to do. So let's talk a little bit about where Nicolas Cage came from. You know, I think a lot of our listeners might know that his, surname at birth was Coppola, but he had an unusual relationship to that name. Were the circumstances of his childhood what people might imagine from a guy who is part of a legendary screen dynasty? Not really. I mean, to say he, he was from modest means is probably underselling it, but he would talk about how he was the guy at Beverly Hills High that didn't have the fancy car, that was surrounded by people who were wealthier than he was. And when he went to live with Francis Ford Coppola and his family for for a, a small stretch, I think that was a shock to him as well. He he likened himself to Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights, it's sort of like you know uh, envious of of these possessions and and wanting to be a part of that, and that kind of motivated him early on. Uh, so you no, know, I mean, he's not. Yeah, he wasn't from the. Uh, he wasn't to, to the manor born, I guess is, is the way to put it. He's definitely born into a, a storied family and his, you know, he received a lot of his film education from his father who was a professor uh, and an author and, and sort of a kind of a Renaissance man of, of sorts. Um, but he wasn't really born into great privilege. His family of origin was also pretty profoundly unstable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his his mother had some pretty profound uh, mental illness that left her him and her institutionalized for large stretches of his childhood. It, it sounds like a really difficult upbringing, and he was very close to his father, but also seems like a, at times a very fraught relationship as well. So, how did he end up becoming an actor? You mentioned Beverly Hills High School. That's a place where lots of famous people, uh, famous people to be. And children of famous people who were uh, go to school. Uh, did he go there with the idea that he could become an actor, or is it something that had happened when he was a teen? You know, I don't know for sure. You know, I, I, that, that, that he ever went to that high school out of desire to become an actor. I, I think it might just be where he was zoned in. That 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 was outside the scope of my, of my research, Jesse. But um, uh, certainly, it was. <laughs> did a, he apply a, to any charter schools? Was he, <laughs> did he consider private? What about parochial? Well, see, if you look at his report cards from fourth grade, you'll see a, an uptick. In, uh, yeah, um, so that I couldn't tell you, but it's certainly a high school that produced many actors uh, had a very influential acting coach and you know that helped kind of set him on his way and you know the proximity to the film industry didn't hurt either i mean you could you could leave class and audition he has a quality to me of always appearing to be trying to figure out what's going on around him <laughs> hmm. often just because of his uh, kind of pretty sad eyes it has a melancholic tinge but like even when he is making his boldest choices, it always feels like there is a little bit of him that is a little scared or a little confused uh, or a little worried that gives him even acting completely goofy uh, a very unusual dimension. 
Yeah, when you said big sad eyes, immediately went to the movie City of Angels, which is pretty good. I, I underrated it at the time. I, I really enjoyed it, appreciated it more when I re- revisited it. It is a quasi remake of Wings of Desire, co-starring Meg Ryan, in which he plays an angel who falls in love with a woman. And you know, I think that figuring it out quality is is really well represented in in that film. And I think you might be onto something there as well. There is there is sort of kind of I guess maybe searching is the word that we're that mm-hmm. we're looking for here. That that. It's a nice. It's a nice through line to, to what he does. I think. I, th- I think. I think you craft it, Jesse. You should write a book about Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I I watched this movie for for this show uh, years ago. I watched this movie called Dog Eat Dog because mm. I was interviewing the screenwriter and director Paul Schrader. Nicolas Cage is in this movie with Willem Dafoe, and there's a moment in this movie where they're on this. I mean, this is the most graphically violent film. That one of the most graphically violent films I've ever seen, certainly outside of the like context of those kinds of movies where the point of it is how much blood you can spurt. And there's this moment in the film that's like towards the climax, like three quarters, four fifths of the way through the movie, they're about to have a deadly battle. And there's just this moment where Nicolas Cage asks Willem Dafoe if he wants to go get a bagel. <laughs> and what was amazing to me about it. A hundred percent. I believe that Nicolas Cage's character would like to get a bagel. Yeah, that movie's a tough set. I I, uh, I say that as, as an admirer of Paul Schrader in, in general, and I, I'd love to see Cage and Defoe and Schrader do another movie together because that, yeah. that one's kind of rough. You think I'm most, I remember most about that movie is at one point there there's a strip club in it where the marquee says Taylor Swift lookalike contest or something like that. And it's like, this is maybe too much of the auteurs touch. Um, <laughs> too much of Schrader in this film. More of my interview with Keith Phipps about Nicolas Cage after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Keith Phipps. Keith is a writer whose work has appeared in the AV Club, The Dissolve, on Uproxx, and elsewhere. He just wrote his first book, The Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career. It's an anthology of work about one of the most fascinating actors in the game, Nicolas Cage. Let's get back into our conversation. Let's hear a clip from Raising Arizona from 1987. This is the film that transformed my guest Keith Phipps into a Nicolas Cage fan, or at least a Nicolas Cage follower for the decades to come. If you haven't seen it, he plays half of a childless couple who uh, steal one of another family's five uh, children. One One out of a set of quintuplets. And uh, in this scene, Nicholas Ca- Nicholas Cage's character, whose name is H.I., uh, has had a run-in with two escaped fugitives. He then brings them home. Uh, and his wife, Ed, who's played by the wonderful Holly Hunter, is obviously not super thrilled that he's brought home two uh, uh, criminals at 2 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> hey, I'd like you to meet Gail and Evel Snopes. My pair is ever broken at her. <laughs> Boys, this here's my wife. Well, at least we've done it. Kind of 
Late for visitors, isn't it, huh? Oh, well, yeah, honey. But these boys just got out of the joint. So we gotta show a little hospitality. Well, now, H.I. Looks like he's been up to the devil's business. Hey, is that a him or her? It's a little boy. Got a name, does he? Uh, so far, we've just been using Junior. We call him Junior. <laughs> that movie is absolutely wild. You mentioned that cartoon-like quality. Um, what's what's the difference? Why why can Nicolas Cage do that and not just seem like a jerk? I mean, it's kind of kind of think the same quality that makes his desire for a bagel relatable that, that it is there is always that vulnerability to it and, when, and that one he's just really is all vulnerability i think some of his best performances also are people who are trying to do the right thing i mean there's i think there's a weird connection between that movie and uh bad lieutenant protocol new orleans which is which is another favorite of mine but, but these are people who are really trying to be characters who are trying to be better than what they are and he really captures how much of a struggle that is as well. And also, I mean, just he's just charming. I mean, you 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 listen to, even just listening to that scene, you can kind of feel like the sort of you know desire to keep his buddies happy and to appease his wife and keep everything you know working, despite the fact that everything's on the verge of falling apart. So this is a guy who, by the time it's like the mid '90s, has been various versions of you know lunky a hunky young man he's been a sweet romantic lead he has been a weirdo how did he end up starring in huge action movies it's still kind of baffling to me as someone who was watching his career at the time that that happened i remember the rock when the rock came out it was just kind of I, I, you know, I didn't, you know, it's hard to put my head around Nicolas Cage appearing in an action film. And yet here we have this period in his career where, where that's what he did primarily. Um, and I think, you know, it was, he, and he was hugely successful at it. And I think it kind of helped define him for the viewing public for a while. Um, how it happened, I, I'm not sure still. I, I think it's just uh, in some ways, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer and Michael Bay taking a chance on, Nicholas Cage as an action star in The Rock. Good speed. You read me, come in. This is good speed. Are the hostages alive? Every one of them. Good speed. Swomack. What about Mason? He's dead, sir. How? When? Just come and get me. And it's kind of a fascinating performance because in some ways he's playing a character who is just resisting being an action star. I mean, he's he is a nerd. I mean, he's someone who does not want to tote a gun, doesn't even use actual curse words <laughs> until late in the film. Um, it's almost in some ways, in some ways kind of semi-autobiographical in that in that sense, where it's, he's someone who who probably himself questioned how he fit into the action film world, playing someone who was not great at fitting into the action film world. And yet, you know, the, the, the film was a huge hit and pe people love it. 
So Liam Neeson is an unusual action star. He's become one of the greatest action stars of our current time. But you can see it because he has an extraordinary face and body. You know, he is in- incredible to look at. He's very handsome in a very distinctive way and has a, you know, a very unusual and distinctive kind of physicality to the way he moves. And he's also of any performer in the history of performance, uh, perhaps the most able to uh, to perform convictedness. You would never question anything that Liam Neeson said he was up to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whether it was uh, whether or not it was getting his daughter back, right? Right. Nicolas Cage is a lot of different weird things. So, what of those weird things made him an action star, or? Was he just in some action movies that people liked because he was in an action movie that people liked a year previous? Hmm. I mean, I think you had to give him some credit for because they're all really unusual performances. And Conair is, I think he's capturing the spirit of that film, uh, which is just let's let's try anything. And I think he's very good at at in let's try anything mode. I think he fits right into that. I think that movie's kind of all over the place ultimately and and a little uh, wearisome. But I mean, it was back to back to back. I mean, Conair and Face Off came out within weeks of each other in 1997. Like suddenly he was inescapable. And I think it was maybe kind of a trap. I think, I think Neeson in some ways has gotten himself stuck. Um, I look forward to new Liam Neeson action films. I don't know that I watch all of them because there's so many, but it's like, you know, he is the, big sad man with a gun you know that's what he what he does now and i think he's you know we, i don't think it's a controversial opinion to say that he could do more than that and and, yeah. his, and his past work is has been more than that um you know i i think cage probably could have kept doing action films and probably made one too many i think gone in 60 seconds is the one that really doesn't work from that action phase and i think it was not as fondly remembered or as it definitely wasn't as embraced by the public at the, at the time, but as to, as to why he fits it, I, I, you know, I think it kind of why he works in other films as well. I mean, he's, he's, he's do he's delivering, he's doing what he does. He's delivering a strong performance. That that's kind of not necessarily what you would expect. So how did he exit that action phase to the extent that he did? I mean, part of it, I think, was diminishing returns. Like, you know, Gone in 60 Seconds wasn't as big of a hit. I think, I suspect, you know, it was partially boredom and a little bit of fear of winding up in, the, in, the, in that trap. I mean, the, his reunion with John Woo, Wind Talkers, in 2002 is definitely not Face Off Part 2. It's this really harrowing war movie that where the violence is unpleasant and, and you leave it feeling that that war is the worst possible thing you can do. But I mean, I think that aughts are a little odd for him. There's kind of a, a restlessness to it. Some of my favorite performances of his are from the aughts, um, you know, adaptation. I think Matchstick Men's a really good underrated movie, but there's not a consistent quality to what he's doing. He's not doing any one thing. He's kind of bouncing around sometimes successfully, sometimes not. I mean, when he does come back, you know, I think – the 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 kind of other wing of his action career is the National Treasure films, which I think are a lot of fun, but they're certainly not as hard hitting and more kind of big adventure movies than what we think of as as 
action movies of what, what he did before. And I think that was, that was a nice spot for him. No idea what you said. It means if there's something wrong, those who have the ability to take action have the responsibility to take action. I'm gonna steal it. <clears throat> what? I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. What's a Nicolas Cage movie from the era of miscellaneous Nicolas Cage films uh, that, even if it isn't a great film, has a particularly great performance in it, or even just particularly great moments in it, like when he goes to get that bagel and dog eats dog? <laughs> well, I mean, f- you know, beyond Mandy, which I think has a big enough cult that doesn't need calling out, which is just a, a terrific film, I think. There's a movie called Mom and Dad, which came out in 2017. It's directed by Brian Taylor, half the team behind the Crank movies and the Ghost Rider sequel, which isn't great, but you know apparently they work together pretty well. Um, and it's definitely a not-for-all-taste sort of film. It, it is a darkly comic, graphically violent horror movie whose premise is basically there's a community where parents are seized by this uncontrollable urge to kill their children. He plays half of a married couple with opposite Selma Blair. Um, I mean, it's, it's a, I think it's a fun movie. I, I, the over the topness of, of its staging and, and, and the horror is, is appeals to me, but you know, in, in Blair's very good too, but leaving all that aside, there, there's, there's a scene in the middle where it's a flashback that's where his character delivers this, this monologue about, the disappointments of middle age, how parenthood can make you feel kind of ambiguous about, yeah, you can feel amb- ambiguous about being, being a parent. Like it's, it's not always, you know, a joyful experience. Um, getting older, things not working out the way you plan to, that is just so touchingly delivered. I think it's one of the best moments in his filmography. Not exactly what I had in mind as a young dude, you know. Bright future, everything in the world to look forward to. I mean, I was gonna grab the world by the and squeeze, boy. Damn it, I remember that kid I used to be like, it was four minutes ago. My feet barely touched the ground back then. My kill ratio was nine out of 10, it was 100% sex. And that guy, in a million years, could never have pictured this tired mother turned out to be fat, bald, cottage cheese, blue bonnet, buttered waistline with hair coming out of my ears, my nose. My salary went from $145,000 to $45,000. Yeah, building a man cave, that's right. You're right! That's one I'm I'm not sure a lot of people have seen that's worth seeking out uh, with with the caveat that, you know, be prepared. Buckle up, there's some rough stuff in that film. Perhaps not quite dog-eat-dog rough, but but rough. One of the movies that you write about in the book that I have great fondness for, in the pantheon of films which are as bonkers as uh, a bonkers Nicolas Cage performance can be, uh, is Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, which is a Werner Herzog movie that doesn't have that much... I don't know actually what it has to do with the movie Bad Lieutenant. It has a title. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are rights issues. <laughs> I think I'm sad. It is really, it is one of the more bonkers movies I've ever watched. Certainly one of the more 
bonkers, pretty successful movies that I watch. It, it works pretty well. <laughs> Tell me about that movie and uh, how Nicolas Cage ended up in a Werner Herzog movie that was a pseudo sequel to the movie Bad Lieutenant that didn't have much to do with the movie Bad Lieutenant. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a matter of someone owning the rights to the name, and it's a, a spiritual companion piece. There's talk of doing more Bad Lieutenants in other cities with other international directors, so be on the lookout for the Bad Lieutenant cinematic universe, I guess. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, what an inspired pairing, Nicolas Cage and Werner Herzog, I mean, two people who are very willing to try things on the fly, like, you know, shoot things, you know, shoot a dying alligator low to the ground and, and have... Uh, you know, hallucinations of lizards and things like that. I mean, there's a lot of insane stuff in this movie, but I really find it incredibly moving as well. I, it's one of my favorite of his performances and, and really one of my favorite of his, of his films because it does go to those extremes, but there's something that tethers the performance and the film to some really, you know, dark truthful explorations of, of addiction, of, you know, vice in the sense of, of someone who is just has grown accustomed to living a, a selfish life without regard for others who kind of has a couple, who still has goodness in them and tries to develop that and become a better person and how hard that is. I mean, this movie has a bonkers climax, uh, which I won't spoil, that leads to this epilogue that's so shot through with ambiguity as, as to where this guy is going next and a final shot that is just completely breathtakingly mysterious. I mean, I, I'm what Nicholas Cage's character is con- trying to convey and the expression he wears in the last shot of the film. I couldn't tell you, but I'm, 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 I'm moved by it every time I see that film. I once did an interview with Ava Mendez for television, for a, uh, an independent spirit awards special that I was hosting. And Ava Mendez had not done a ton of independent movies at the time, but she was presenting the nominations. So I'm sitting there with Ava Mendez, perhaps the most attractive person I've ever been in the same room with. It was very intimidating. And I'm like, what am I going to ask? And she's very bright. Like, she's a sharp tack. And I'm like, what am I going to talk to Ava Mendez about? And I'm like, okay, I'm going to talk to her about Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans, <laughs> which she stars opposite Nicolas Cage. And I don't think I've ever seen someone's eyes light up like that. She mm. was so thrilled to talk about Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans and Werner Herzog. And I just imagine, like, what an amazing thing that was. <laughs> These people all together making this bananas movie and look i'm not going to reveal the climax either but i'll say that there's some break dancing in it <laughs> there is some break dancing not not even mendez we should probably clarify if anyone no. wants to tune in to see that yeah she's really good in that she has she has she has really good taste in, in projects that she's and it was a reunion because she's also his his girlfriend in, in ghost rider which um you know this is a probably a little more going on in this one than, than in ghost rider but clearly she enjoyed working with with cage or at least enough to, to reunite with him on this to what extent is uh, Nicolas Cage baddie as a person in the real world? To what extent were you able to determine whether the stuff about dinosaur skeletons and stuff <laughs> reflected just a guy who was rich and wanted to buy himself some nerd stuff? And to what extent it was a, a genuinely eccentric man? 
I don't know. I mean, I think it takes a certain amount of eccentricity to spend that amount of money on dinosaur skulls. But I also think if I had that amount of money, I might be buying dinosaur skulls too. It sounds cool, yeah, right? I, mean, I would love to have a dinosaur skull. It would be yeah. awesome. I would settle for a saber tooth tiger skull. That's not even, that's, that's after dinosaurs. Uh, I, I can't claim any great insight into who Nicolas Cage is as a person. The sense I get, though, is is someone who's fairly sincere about those sorts of things. I mean, he you know he he enjoys you know buying macabre properties in New Orleans that that ultimately you know, he has to to sell, um, and enjoys just kind of traveling the world, experiencing it. I honestly don't. I think the one real through line. I get reading interview after interview with him is that he is really into acting. And so there, there is, you know, that, that might be the, the real passion, but at the same time, if your acting career gives you a, if you, if you have a fascination with, with weird stuff and you have suddenly have a lot of money, I, I think, you know, you're, you're buying dinosaur skulls and such. Even more with Keith Phipps still to come after a short break. He watched a lot of Nick Cage films while writing this book. More than anyone ever has? <laughs> it's possible. He'll tell me how doing all that research changed his opinion of the actor and how he makes sense of his resurgent career now. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say Bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week for My Brother, My Brother, and Me. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. My guest is writer Keith Phipps. He's the author of the new book, Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career. Let's get back into our conversation. Your book ended up uh, roughly coinciding with a movie called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which came out this year recently and uh, is, you know, the highest profile Nicolas Cage film of the last few years. Um, quite a while, at least as far as I can see. It is a self-aware movie in which he plays himself. So, or a version of himself. Were you worried about this movie when you were getting ready to write this book? When when it hit the trades that he was going to do this? I was so worried about this movie. I don't think anyone worried about this movie that wasn't involved in the movie as much as I did because it was announced while I was starting to write the book. And like, you know, it's a re reflection on his career. It's a reflection on his past roles. And in some ways on changes in Hollywood. It's like, well, that's kind of my book. I hope this isn't like a, you know, bad, <laughs> you know, I hope this is attempting something like what I'm attempting in movie form. That's not good. Um, 
I was somewhat relieved when I read the screenplay that, that I found myself chuckling with it. And then when I saw the film itself, I was I was quite relieved that, that I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think it's a really fun movie. And I think it's kind of what we've been talking about where Cage is playing sort of a cartoonish version of his of himself and that reflects in some ways some of his, his you know his career and also some of the the difficulties he's experienced over the last decade there's sort of nods to his spinning habits etc cetera, etc cetera. uh but that's not the whole movie because he's really getting at the character it's kind of what we've been talking about before there's there's a real um you know sadness and need to to quote unquote nicholas cage in this film also i mean it's works as a buddy comedy he and pedro pascal are really fun together i would watch uh even if you take out the meta elements it's it's a it's kind of a it's a it's a fun com you know it's a fun buddy comedy those two are really good together let's hear a buddy moment so the the idea of this movie basically is that nicholas cage is a nicholas cage like movie star named nicholas cage uh who gets a million dollar offer to go to a, a rich guy's birthday party they end up having that as you mentioned that buddy relationship and um in this scene, uh, Cage is talking with Javi, who's played by Pedro Pascal, uh, about favorite movies. And Javi says one of his favorite movies is Paddington 2. Um, in fact, he says that is his third favorite movie, specifically. Uh, Cage hasn't seen the movie, uh, so, they, so they sit down and watch it together. Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, Paddington 2, connect those dots. I mean, I don't want to be a snob, but... I cried through the entire thing and made me want to be a better man. Bull Mom! <laughs> Heading it too is incredible. I told you. <laughs> now we've been adding dimension and shade and a light to the, our portrait of Nicolas Cage for this entire interview, Keith. But I want to know what's a movie that has a part where Nicolas Cage goes totally bonkers uh, that you love the part where Nicolas Cage goes totally bonkers. I mean, the gold standard for Cage Freakouts is Vampire's Kiss. What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z! Huh? That's all you have to do! Very good. You know your alphabet. I never misspelled anything! Not once, not one time! I'm sure that you didn't. I mean, everything else is in some ways uh, echoes of that. And, and, but I do feel like, you know, some of the nuance when you watch the YouTube clips, it's nothing but freak out moments. Um, you, you lose a lot of the nuance uh, there. I mean, the one, no one's seen or not that we've really seen that's full of, of big cage moments is, is Zandali, um, which at one point he covers himself in black paint, uh, which is apparently was, was his, his idea of, for an improv and the directors went with it. And boy, that's, that's remarkable. I mean, the one, but one that I think that actually is a fantastic piece of acting. That's also a cage freak out is in matchstick men where he's someone he's, he's, his character has just been driven to wit's end by not being able to fill a prescription for his medication. Um, and he 
tries to cut the line, tries to talk to pharmacists. He's, he's you know, in a, in a heightened, he's worked himself into a frenzy and he finally just loses it on someone else. He's cut in front of a line and, and you know, says words that probably are not repeatable uh, on, on the air. But it is a an, it is a truly um, is is a true highlight among among Nicolas Cage freakouts. You've watched so many movies in your long career as a film writer and critic, and you went back and watched a hundred and whatever Nicolas Cage movies to write this book. How did your understanding of the arc of film over that forty year period that Nicolas Cage has been making movies? change from watching all of these Nicolas Cage movies? What did you learn about the broader world of film from watching 100 Nicolas Cages? You go back and you read enough essays and, and film has always been dying. You can, you can read it, you know, from any given year about how the film, you know, films are doomed as an art because of whatever. That said, I'm not optimistic about mainstream filmmaking these days. I, I, I on the one hand, I have of two minds. Cause I, I'll, you know, it's a family tradition. We go see the new Marvel movies. My, my daughter is, is so into, into that right now. And I like that stuff too. It's, it's a lovely thing to share, but I, wow, do I wish there were more going on? There's the more than big franchise films coming out. And, you know, I think the beginning of Cage's career kind of catches the tail end of the seventies. Um, you know, obviously it is the eighties, but he, you know, he's working with Francis Ford Coppola. There's there's more possibilities. It's not just completely blockbuster driven at the beginning of his career. And, you know, he finds a way to find interesting block when you does shift over to blockbusters. They tend to be pretty interesting. You know, the, the rock like it or not, it's distinctive and it's groundbreaking. And it's looked like another film that came out at the time. In some ways, I feel like if you're going to sit out, if you, if you're a movie star that needs to sit out a decade or, you know, spit on the sidelines making smaller, low-budget films that mostly go direct to VOD. You know, the teens aren't a bad one to sit out. I, 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 it is a, a decade in which mainstream Hollywood filmmaking became increasingly focused on big franchises. And I, I know we're still in that phase, but at least maybe, I don't know, it's, at some point maybe we'll find a way out of it. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But there, there is, you know, if you, watch, if you follow the career, it is – you know, Cage's career is Cage's career. It's, it's it follows an eccentric path, but the background noise is of a an increasingly risk averse filmmaking system, and I wonder where we go from here with that. Well, especially if you're Nicolas Cage, uh, I can't imagine a less risk averse uh, Hollywood person on earth. <laughs> than Nicolas Cage. Right. And, and, you know, he's going to be Count Dracula in this movie coming out next year called Renfield. It's his first big studio film in a while. So, you know, we'll see what happens with that. Well, Keith, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time. It's always great to see you. I really enjoyed the book. So uh, thanks, pal. Jesse, thanks so much for having me. It was nice to, to talk to you in person again. I know, like humans. Keith Phipps. His new book is called Age of Cage, Four Decades of Hollywood Through One Singular Career. You can buy it now at your local bookstore. Keith and his former AV club and the Dissolve colleague Scott Tobias also collaborate on a great newsletter, which you can find on Substack. It's called The Reveal.
That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Today at my house, I fixed my toilet after my five-year-old got angry, (laughs) said she was going to pull the pipe out of the wall and did. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. It is a small pipe, but she really... Wow. We get booking help on the show from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme music is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team for sharing it with us, along with their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us in those places and follow us, and we will share our interviews with you there as well. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. NPR is doing its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. Please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. All one word. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. All one word. Thanks.